So we're uh, continuing our series on Isaiah's Messiah. And we've been, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the last uh, chapters of the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and we've been seeing how he is speaking of this coming uh, servant of the Lord. And this servant of the Lord, it's interesting because it's the, the passages are kind of, you see them intermixed. And at one point, he's reigning and he's ruling and he's powerful. And, and another minute, he's suffering. And we're going to see that today in the passage we're looking at. Uh, but the, the point I want you to see is this mysterious figure, we don't really, Isaiah doesn't say who it is. In fact, at one point, it seems as though Isaiah is saying this, this, this servant of the Lord is the nation of Israel. But then as you go further, he narrows it down to a person. So we believe, Christians believe, many Christians, most Christians believe, that this servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ. That he came and he fulfilled the, these passages that we're going to look at. This weekend, we're going to look at a passage, uh, Isaiah 53. We're going to actually look at the last part of 52 and then uh, uh, some passages in Isaiah 53. This would probably be one of the most significant uh, prophetic passages in all of the scripture about Jesus and the cross. Um, uh, it explains what happened on the cross. It, it describes it. it. It's an amazing passage of scripture. And that's probably why the New Testament writers constantly go to Isaiah 53 and they quote passages from Isaiah 53. Some of the passages that we're going to read uh, this uh, weekend, you're going to look at them and say, oh, I remember that, or oh, that looks familiar, or this, and you're, going to, and, and you're going to know that, and maybe you haven't read a lot of the Old Testament, but you read the New Testament, and you say, oh, I've read that passage. Well, it's because probably the New Testament writers quoted that passage. So this is one of those chapters that you could do a whole series on this chapter. We're not going to do that this weekend. We're just going to talk about uh, some uh, this passage, and we're going to talk about how it applies to our lives, but also how it applies to Jesus and his passion. So the passage that we want to look at uh, is, it begins in Isaiah 52, verse uh, 13, and that's the last part of chapter 52. And what we're going to do is we're going to look through five stanzas. So this is poetic literature. Many of the uh, the uh, prophets are written in poetic meter, and so we're going to look at five stanzas, and we're going to draw those five stanzas out and just kind of make an application. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a stanza, then we'll talk about it, then I'll read a stanza, and we'll talk about it, and so on, and you can follow along with me. But for now, uh, if you want to know where are we starting, it's Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13. I'm going to read the last three chapter, three verses of Isaiah 52. Let me read those right now. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted high and highly exalted. Just as there were many who uh, were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. So one of the puzzling things about this servant of the Lord, and we see it over and over and over in these passages that we're looking at, is there is um, success and defeat. There's beauty and there's ugliness. Um, 
there's success and defeat. There's just, just all these different things going on. And uh, in, 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 when we read the passage, it says that he's beaten beyond recognition, the servant of the Lord. And, and that's the thing that's puzzling about it. You say, well, how is he a ruler and reign? reign how is he a ruler and how is he reign when he's beaten beyond, uh, you know, uh, recognition? Uh, because it says he will be raised up and he, li- he will be highly exalted. So, so we have this, in the same passage, we have these two competing ideas, these contrasts. But if we look at the life of Jesus, we see the crucifixion is certainly a part of this stanza. We see a reference to another day where Jesus is going to come back exalted. And we can find that in the New Testament also. You read the book of Revelation, you read some of the other gospels and some of the other uh, accounts. We see that there is a day coming where Jesus will come to rule and reign and judge the earth. So we see both of those here. What this shows us, though, and we're, we're talking about, well, okay, so that's Jesus, and I'm not Jesus. At least last time I checked, I'm not Jesus. Uh, so what does that mean for me? And the answer is that um, the ap- application in my ma- mind is that oftentimes what we tend to do is we tend to gauge our life by how it is going. In other words, we say, if my life is going well, then, uh, then God loves me. If my life isn't going well, then I must have done something to make God angry or to tick him off, and I'm being punished. And uh, I just want you to understand that your circumstances don't dictate God's love for you. Now, we've pointed this out in previous messages, but some people believe that their circumstances point to the fact that God doesn't love them, or at least they question God's love in those times. And I think, as I talked about it a week ago, I think that goes back to this idea of our pop culture that says that uh, when you become a Christian, it's our Christian pop culture, and it basically says when you become a Christian, you shouldn't expect to have any difficulties, any problems, any issues with life. God is going to promise you a great life, and uh, then you die and you go to heaven, right? But what we, sh- what we have to understand is the fact that you're experiencing difficult circumstances does not mean that God doesn't love you. In fact, if you read one of the most beloved Psalms of all time, Psalm 23, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So that just assumes that there'll be times where you're going to be going through a dark valley, those dark valley times of life. But what is the promise there? The promise isn't that you won't go through those times. The promise is that when you go through those times, the great shepherd will be with you. And he will be there to comfort you. He will be there to carry you. He will be there to minister to you. And so that's the promise. Not that we won't have those difficult circumstances, but that when we do have those circumstances, we won't be walking alone. And that's really essentially what we're promised. Um, The other thing I want to say is, it doesn't mean just because you go through difficult times that God has abandoned you during your difficult times. Um, In fact, he often picks us up and carries us. So the point I want you to see is don't allow your circumstances to dictate whether God does or doesn't love you. Uh, and, and here's the lesson, and, and you probably have your notes. Hopefully you have them. You can pull them out. But the first point is this. God's love for us is not dictated by our circumstances. Now, it's easy for us to believe that in our heads, but it's hard to believe it when we're going through those difficult times, isn't it? 
Because those are the times you say, well, what did I do, God? Why did I make you angry? Why are you punishing me or whatever? And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the point I want you to see here is that God's love and the circumstances of your life are not tied together. God doesn't say, okay, now you've ticked me off. I'm angry. I no longer love you, so you're going to go through these difficult times. Uh, That's not the way it works. God absolutely loves you. And the picture of Jesus is he was absolutely, uh, you know, co-eternal, co-equal with the Godhead, loved of the Godhead. And still he went through difficult circumstances. And by the way, he went through them for us. He suffered for us. He was abandoned for us so that we wouldn't be forgiven or we wouldn't be forgotten, that we wouldn't be abandoned. And so when we understand that, that uh, circumstances don't dictate God's love for us. That's the first thing. So let's look at the second stanza. This is where we get into Isaiah 53 proper. Verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Now, one of the things very interesting as you read the gospel accounts of Jesus, and this happens all the time, is that we see that Jesus is continually overlooked. He is dismissed. He's even despised. Now, the word that uh, Isaiah uses for despised means to be taken light of, to be laughed at, and to be dismissed. And you say, well, are there any passages in the New Testament where we see that happening to Jesus? Well, of course there is. Uh, from, not just from his enemies, by the way. We'll show you those. But there are many passages, and I've just given you, I'm going to give you a few, few illustrations. You might want to write some of these down and look at them a little later. <clears throat> Remember John, John the Baptist? He's the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who's to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, he did. And he, one time uh, he, when he had his whole disciples with him and Jesus had his disciples, and uh, he, John sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it says that many of John's disciples began to follow Jesus. And John was saying, I must, he must increase, I must decrease. So John's getting it right. He's knocking it out of the park. He absolutely gets his role. That he's not the Messiah, he's the forerunner of the Messiah or the servant of the Lord. So he gets that. But then later on, John's in prison. And he begins to doubt him. And Jesus and you know, they, John sends the messengers, are you the one or is there someone else? Now, you can understand why John is feeling that way. His circumstances have changed. He's in prison. He's probably been thrown in a dark uh, Roman prison. He's probably lacking food. He's probably struggling. And he wonders, is Jesus truly the Messiah? So he sends uh, some people to ask Jesus. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, he says go back to John and tell him the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. In other words, what he was saying to John is, yes, John, hang in there. Though your circumstances have changed, I'm still the Messiah. But he doubted. He doubted. Um, well, how about his, his hometown, his community? So he was, he was uh, born in Bethlehem, but he was really from Nazareth, right? So um, 
is you read Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And I mentioned this uh, just kind of in passing last week. But in Luke chapter uh, 4, Jesus enters the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. Okay, this, he's the hometown boy, right? He's in Nazareth. And as a traveling rabbi, as I said last weekend, um, the rabbi was given the opportunity to read whatever scroll. Now remember, the Old Testament was written and it was on scrolls. So they would pull out, an Isaiah, he pulled out the Isaiah scroll, interestingly enough. And he began to read Isaiah chapter 61. Now, you want to later on go back to Isaiah and read 61 because I want you to see where he read and where he stopped. That's very significant. We'll probably be talking about that. I'm not sure yet. But he rolls, he rolls, he reads Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2. And he basically says, today is the day to proclaim the, the, you know, the, the favor of the Lord. And he goes, he reads Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. But then he stops. He rolls the scroll back up and he puts the, has the scroll, put, put it back and he says, today, this is what he says, it's a direct quote from, uh, from Mark or Luke. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of this scripture that I just read. Now, by the way, where he quit is very interesting because it talks about the Lord's favor. It talks about the Lord's grace. If he kept re reading and he read the next verse, it talks about the, the day of judgment. Well, that, the, why Jesus didn't come, John says in his gospel, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but the world might have life through him. So his first, his first coming to earth was a time of bringing hope, of bringing the gospel, of bringing forgiveness. That's why he came. So he stops reading before he reads the day of judgment. He rolls the scroll up, he puts it back, and he says, today, before, before your very eyes, with your very ears, I'm telling you, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, again, this is his hometown. This is the place where he went to school. This is the place where he worked with his father, probably learning the trade of being a carpenter. This is where he had neighbors and friends. Uh, and what happens? They gather together as an angry mob. You can read about it in Luke chapter 4, verse 28. They gather together as an angry mob, and they, they, they want to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> and he miraculously escapes. You can read about that. All right, so this is his hometown. Okay? And, and, and the thought was, it can't be him. Are you kidding me? Not him. Not the carpenter's son. His own family. You say, well, of course his own family must have trusted him, believed in him. I mean, come on, Mary bore him. She had the angels. The, angels told, the angel told her this is a special child. You know, of course, every mother thinks her little baby is special, but she had an angel to tell. So she could say, you know, when... When she said, well, he's a special child, and every other mother said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, an angel told me. Well, okay, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of a trump card, right? But even Mary began to doubt. And at one point, his own family rejected him. You can read about it, John chapter 7 and verse 5. And in Mark chapter 3, 21, they thought he was mad. They thought he was out of his mind. So you have John the forerunner, you have his hometown, you have his own family, and of course, you know, you can find many 
many examples of the religious leaders. Look at the religious leaders. They, they were looking constantly for opportunities to discredit and ultimately kill him. Let me just give you a few references to write down. You could probably write a bunch. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, Mark 12, 12, John chapter 5, verse 18. All those passages basically say, and they were looking for a way to discredit him. They were looking for a way to kill him. Now, why? Why did so many get, why did so many people get Jesus wrong? I mean, how could you get it so wrong, right? Well, Isaiah tells us. He said, well, he was kind of ordinary. He was ultimately despised by just about everyone around him. Some people think that Jesus was this, this, commanding, crazy, good-looking, you know, the hair blowing. He was an ordinary guy and overlooked by everyone. Here's the application for us. We often think, and you think this, you probably thought this, well, God won't use me because I'm not rich, I'm not powerful, I'm not very educated, um, I'm not very cultured, and we often think God used the rich, the powerful, the cultured, the educated. The, the, he, uses the, the, he uses, you know, just about anybody except me. I mean, we can always find five or ten reasons why God would never use me, right? But when we look at Scripture, when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the disciples, look at the disciples for a minute. A lot of fishermen, a tax collector hated by the Jews, right? You have some real, you have, a, you have uh, Judas is probably a zealot, you know, kind of this, this warrior guy that's looking for the next, you know, Maccabean, you know, revolutionary. Uh, you have this hodgepodge of people, and that's the point, that, that God is constantly using the overlooked, the marginalized, the rejected ones, the weak ones, the ones that you would never pick. That's the ones that God loves using. Let me ask you a personal question, and it might crush you. Can you think back to the day, the time when they put you in one line and they said, okay, now we're going to pick teams. And the two captains get out there and they pick and they pick and they pick and they pick. And you're the last pick. And probably that's happened to most of us, if not all of us, if we're honest. You're the last one picked. And I just want to tell you that God can take the last one picked and use them in incredible ways beyond your comprehension. God loves to take the last one picked to do mighty things through them. He is glorified when he takes what the world has passed over and uses them to change the world. Let me give you one quick example. The Apostle Paul. You remember the Apostle Paul? He's that, that guy and happened to write a lot of the New Testament as we know it. And, and Paul, very interestingly, he's got this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. You know, it possibly might just be a thorn. I, who knows what it was, you know, right? But he had this affliction. And it was so 
disturbing to him. Then he went to God and he prayed mightily, God, please take this thorn away. Take this thorn away. Take this. Three times he prayed that prayer. And by the way, that, there's a whole other sermon there about when does God heal? Why does God heal? And God says to him, you know, you talk about a servant. You talk about somebody who's got it right. You talk about somebody who could be more powerfully used in our understanding by not having this thorn draining his energy and focusing his time on and all this that probably goes on when you have an affliction, right? You say, oh man, if I didn't have this affliction, if I had more energy, if I had, you know, whatever. And God says to him three times, no, no, no. And it's interesting what he says to Paul. He says, when you are weak, then I am strong. And we don't think that. We think when I am strong, then he is strong. No, when, he, when we are strong, then we tend to take the credit for it. We tend to say, oh, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. Thank you very much. And so God brought Paul to a place where he had to come to his knees before God and say, if I'm able to do this trip, if I'm able to write this letter, if I'm able to do this deal with this conflict within the church, if I'm able to do it, it's going to have to be through the power of God. And God is glorified when his power is used through us. Weak vessels. We are nothing more than vessels. And the problem is we get our, our, our big heads, we get our big ideas that God uses powerful, well-gifted, you know, people. And God says, I love using the overlooked, the marginalized, the ones that never get picked so that when they start knocking it out of the park, the only explanation can be it must be God. So lesson number two is God loves doing extraordinary things through ordinary people like you and me. Here's the third stanza. This is the part Stanza number three is where we really get into the crucifixion and we get into the whole idea of him suffering. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took our pain. He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me just make a quick statement about this whole passage about how it's been used for physical healing. I think you can make a great case. Uh, you know, you can do a good study on healing in this, in this passage. And, uh, but... I, I, I think the, the point is, many people say, by his wounds we are healed, or some translations say, by his stripes we are healed. I think if you look at the context, it's really not talking about physical healing here. It's talking about this sickness that sin brings, this lostness that we have, that our soul is broken, and that we need th this redemptive power of God in our lives to turn our lives around. And without him, we are not healed. We need to be healed spiritually. And I, I, I don't think it, it's talking about physical healing. I know it's used that way often, but I don't see it in the context. It's all talking about this whole forgiveness and redemption and dealing with sin. Now, this passage, simply put, is talking about substitutionary atonement. And that's just a big theological term that simply means this. 
that Jesus took our place. He took our punishment. He took what we deserved upon himself. Uh, they used to have uh, these uh, things uh, used to happen. I think it happened in the South. I think it's happened all over the world uh, through time. Um, they used to have these uh, servants or slaves they would use, and they would, they would be whipping boys. Now, the reason they had those was that uh, many times those people that raised the children of the king or the royalty or whatever, uh, when, the, when, this, we, when these children misbehaved, um, they had to find a way to get them to behave. <laughs> and they couldn't whip them, they couldn't spank them, they couldn't you know, punish them. So what they would do is they would take the servant and the servant would take the lashes or the punishment that the, the children of the king would deserve. The idea there was that they would be brought to tears, they would be brought to repentance. They would say, well, it was my, my misbehavior, it was my bad behavior that, that caused the pain of this person that was innocent. And, and the idea is that's where you get the idea of a whipping boy. And in a sense, what Jesus became was the whipping boy for us. It was our sin. We were the guilty ones, not him. He was innocent. He was without blemish. He was the Lamb of God. So he took upon himself what we deserve. And uh, we have that clearly po pointed out in this stanza. The servant of God would be punished. He would suffer and give his life for the guilty. Our iniquity was fully laid upon him. That's certainly what this passage is talking about. Now, the interesting thing is, he wasn't forced to do it. A servant, a whipping boy, was forced to do it. Jesus was not forced to do it. He willingly and voluntarily gave himself for us. We see Jesus saying that very clearly in John chapter 10, verse 18, where he says this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. What is Jesus saying? Nobody made me do this. I chose to do it for you and for me. Now, I've talked with people, maybe you have too, and they wonder, does God really love me? Does he really care? And they feel like, well, I don't really deserve his love. Uh, they feel like, well, I made such a mess of my life. I, I've done so many things that I know God doesn't want, or is, he, he, was, he's so, he must be so disappointed with me. I made such a mess of my life that I can't believe that Jesus still loves me. Or they say, I need to find a way that I can earn his love back. Now, this comes for a number of reasons. Sometimes it comes because you just had bad parents. Sometimes bad parents do things like that. They say, well, I won't love you if you do that. Or they, they treat them, uh, their kids, and they, they feel like they have to earn their, their love and respect. Instead of having uh, parents to say, I'm going to love you uh, no matter what, that's never going to change. Now, I may punish you, and I may be disappointed with you, but I'll never stop loving you. And they haven't been raised in an environment. that They've been raised in, I love you when, I love you if, or I love you because. And so they transfer that on God, and they say, I don't believe that Jesus could truly love me because my life doesn't measure up. I've, I, I've failed him. I haven't lived the way that I know I should. I feel like I've fallen short. 
But here's the thing. Jesus has done everything to show us he loved us. Voluntarily, he chooses to love us. He gets nothing in return, and he's okay with that. He chooses to love you, period. I don't understand that, but it's really important that you do because if you, if you get to a place where you think you have to earn his love, you have to live up to some expectations that he has before he will love you, or whatever it is, you are never going to be in a place to receive the grace of the gospel. You'll never understand it first. There's a lot of people in this community that think they have to earn his love. They have to go to church. They have to believe in God. They have to live a good life. And they're doing all those things to say, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, one day God will accept me and love, love me enough to allow me to be in heaven. The real issue is this. Will you keep yourself from his love? I love what J.I. Packard, he's a theologian, he writes these words. He says, are you melted by spiritual understandings of how much he loves you? Do you live in the reality of it? Is it a waking and walking reality? Can you breathe it? Can you feel it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? Do you know how different you'd be if you realized the magnitude of his love? And I think that's why Paul says, I want you to know the height and the depth and the width and the breath of his love. Because when you begin to understand how much he loves you, by the way, he loves you, period. He doesn't love you because, if, or when. He just loves you, period. And the more you understand that, the more you understand the depth of his love, the more you'll better understand the wealth of the gospel. Here's the, the lesson here. The only thing that's keeping you from the love of Jesus is you. It's not him. It's you. Here's the fourth stanza. Let's look at it. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open to his, mo his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and, his, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. The interesting thing when you see the trial of Jesus, when you see the crucifixion and the, and the, the walk to the cross, when you see all of that, Jesus is not talking a lot. He's not he, he, it almost like you have to drag answers out of him. Are you the king of the Jews? You say I am. I mean, he's not going to say, I'm here to give my life so that you will believe and trust in me. I am the Messiah. I mean, he's just not. He's not talking. He walked to his death quietly. Though there was chaos all around him, he was focused on his mission. He was alone, rejected, and abandoned, but he carried a quiet confidence that somebody was watching. He knew there was somebody who cared for him, who knew what he was going through. Jesus experienced the total and complete abandonment for you. He did this so that you would never be abandoned. He is with us, and he knows what we are going through. You know, one of the most important things that we need to hang on to, especially when we're going through tough times of uncertainty and suffering, is to know that somebody is watching, somebody cares, 
and somebody knows what's going, what you're going through. Isn't that one of the things when you're going through something and you're trying to explain it to somebody? Maybe somebody you love and care for, maybe a family member or a friend or, or, or somebody. And you're trying to explain it, you're trying to help them, you're trying to get them to understand kind of what you're going through and they just don't get it. And sometimes you, you, you get connected with somebody who has gone through that suffering, who's gone through that difficulty, who's felt what you felt and gone through the depth of what you've gone through. And you begin to have a conversation with that person and they go, oh, yeah, I get that. Oh, did you feel like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like all of a sudden you have a kindred spirit. Well, you know what? You have one already because you have somebody like Jesus. And when Jesus, when you go to Jesus, when you understand that there is somebody who not only understands what you're going through, but has been through it himself. He knows exactly the details of what you're going through, and he understands. You say, well, I was rejected. Yeah, I've been rejected. Yeah, I had good friends, and they didn't stand by me. Yeah, that, that happened to me. You know, people maligned me and made fun of me. Yeah, that happened to me. I went through physical pain, excruciating pain. Yep, yep, yep. Been there, done that. And, and he's not saying it to diminish it. He says, I... I'm not just a God who's above creation, looking down. I'm a God that, that entered into the creation, became a man, went through the suffering, went through the loss, went through the abandonment, went through the rejection, went through the physical pain, and went through the weight of the sin of the world that came upon me and went through the abandonment by my father. I get it. I understand what you're going through. The interesting thing is our Father in Heaven identifies with victims. He knows our pain. He knows, He understands, He knows. See, when we've been, when we've been rejected, He remains. When everyone else has left, He is there. When no one understands, He does. So, Lesson number four, when you think you're all alone and no one cares, you're wrong. <laughs> you are, you're just wrong. It's not, that's, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he knows and he cares and he understands. So you feel that way, but your feelings are, you know, how many times are your feelings wrong? I mean, I'm not just talking about in the past over the last week. I'm talking the last day or the last couple hours, right? So when you think you're all alone and no one cares, you're wrong. There is somebody who knows and cares and understands, all right? Stanza number five, we'll close with this one. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. That's a prophecy of his burial. Because when they took him down, they found the rich man's grave to put him in, Right? Though he had done no violence nor any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous surface will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That phrase, 
numbered with the transgressors I want to look at. For he bore our, the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. So in Isaiah, the servant is seen, as I said before, as you begin Isaiah, he's seen kind of as a nation of Israel. The servant is seen as a nation of Israel. But then in, um, it is narrowed down to a man. And we believe him to be Jesus. If you read Isaiah 49.3, it talks about him being the nation. All these stanzas, though, interestingly enough, the five stanzas we've looked at were written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. 700 years. This is before Rome. This is before the crucifixion. They didn't even have crucifixion here. Uh, Jesus was numbered with his transgressors. That's us. He bore the sin of man and makes intercession for transgressors. That's us. Now, in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus tells his disciples, and he's quoting Isaiah 53, and he basically says, that's speaking of me. The phrase that he quotes, it has it, he says, he was numbered with his transgressors. And Jesus is saying, that must be fulfilled by me. That's going to be fulfilled by me. Now, what does it mean to be numbered with? Jesus was treated as if he had done all the bad things we have done. He took our guilt. He did this so he could justify us. Justify just means to be made righteous. When we trust Jesus, we are treated as if we lived as Jesus did, fulfilling and keeping the law perfectly. I used a phrase, I didn't, it was not with, it, I didn't invent it, but Tim Keller did, and I think it's great. And I use it all the time. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. When I say he lived the life we should have did, he lived a perfect, obedient life. He was the only one ever on this earth that lived absolutely in obedience and to every and kept every command of the law. He didn't break one. He never sinned. He was perfect. He was a spotless lamb of God. No blemishes, no sin. The point I want you to see is that when we trust in Jesus, we're treated as we lived as Jesus did, fulfilling and keeping the law perfectly. We're treated in God's eyes as good and perfect and righteous. You say, well, I'm not. No, you're not. Neither am I. But in God's eyes you are because there was a transference that took place. He took your sin. He took your rebellion. He took your, all that you did wrong upon himself. The weight of sin, he took it. And he gave us his righteousness. We are viewed in God's eyes as forgiven, as righteous. Our lives are different. Now we've been set free from the power of sin and the fear of death. We've been given a new life, an eternal life. And this life only comes to us when we call upon Jesus. We must come to a place, in my mind, of desperate need. We must come to a place when we give up trying to save ourselves and we give in to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, you're my only hope. We're like the thief on the cross next to Jesus who says, Jesus, I'm about to die. When you get into paradise, remember me. And Jesus says, he doesn't say this, but essentially what the point is, because this man is placing his faith and trust in Jesus, says, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't uh, pay for it. Uh, he had no time to do anything. No, no baptism, no church services, no nothing. All he did was place his faith in Jesus. And that's what everyone in the Old Testament did. Abraham believed God, trusted God. And it was credited him as righteousness. Here's the point I want you to see. It's the last lesson. Your freedom comes. By the way, this is going to be totally different than the points you have written down. So 
sorry for that, but sometimes you have to re renew what your thoughts were. Your freedom comes when you give your life to Him. Your freedom comes when you give your life to Him. So when you come to a place where you give yourself to Him, you find your real self. Give up your life and you will find your real life. And I want to close by reading one passage, one last passage. This is from Mark chapter 8, and this is uh, what uh, Jesus says. And I think they're good words for us to close with this weekend. Then he called the crowd to him among, along with his disciples. This is Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Is anyone, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, there's that phrase, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus says, coming to him means that you give into him and you give your life up to him. Why? Because he gave his life for you. Have you done that? Have you called upon the Lord? The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus constantly said to his followers, come, follow me. Are you following him? Have you given your life to him? Have you stopped trying to save yourself and allowed him to come into your life and to be your savior? Isaiah says there was this messianic figure. We believe him to be Jesus. And he was butchered. He was beaten beyond recognition and he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement that should have fell on us fell on him do you know him or is are you still trying to do your best the bible says only those who call upon the lord only those who give their lives to jesus will be saved from the coming judgment and wrath let's pray Help us, Father, to take something from these lessons and apply it to our lives. Thank you that you love us and that you have a plan and a purpose for each one of us. Thank you that you have provided everything that we need. Thank you that you know us and you understand what we're going through. Thank you that you sent the only answer to our sin problem. And it was your very only begotten Son. And that Jesus willingly came on a mission to save us on a rescue mission of one. Father, may we begin to grasp how much we are loved by you and by your son, Jesus. And may that change our hearts. May it change us from the inside out so that we are different people. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.